everyone and welcome to Pets Chats with APBC. We are the Association of Pets Behaviour Counsellors and we're here to teach you how to be the best pet owner or behaviourist in the world. I'm Lauren Hewitt-Watts and I'm joined by my co-host Danielle Beck. Hello! So today we were talking about things we want to cover and myths about APBC came up because we've been around for a long time and like any organisation there are always these kind of thoughts or myths or unconfirmed things that we might think so we're here to debunk these myths so (laughs) I'm going to start and I'm going to start asking Danielle and the first one that I hear is that the APBC is very old-fashioned and they're not keeping up with trends in behavior and training what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, just because we've been around a long time, I think we're in our 35th year is coming up either this year or next year. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that we're not up to date. You know, we have a lot of young members. We've got members that have been here since the beginning. And we are very much a science-led organisation. So we kind of go where the science is. So we're very up to date on our methods. We're very up to date with moving changes and listening to what's going on in the industry and doing our best to kind of be at the forefront of helping make change for the better of the industry and for our clients and ourselves so I very much want to steer away from the myth that you know we're very rigid and structured and old school because we're not I mean myself and Lauren we're very much faces of the APBC at the minute and I mean I don't think I'm that old personally <laughs> I mean the APBC is older than me maybe so um, you know so we we are changing and as we get new members in with new ideas we're always open and we're very much putting our members forward as an organization we want to listen to what our members need what our members want and we will make the changes of committee members where we can to help the organization grow in that way forward to make space and make improve welfare for our members in the future and for their pets Mm. and I think we're getting quite a, a young membership come through as well so we've got the benefit of having kind of the people who've been around very experienced for a long time and then we've also got this really nice influx of of younger members and I think that's really important for any organization but it it helps us keep up to date and not be stuck in that very traditional you know method or structure of of behavior so um yeah yeah absolutely because it's very simple for any of us that work in this industry kind of get stuck in our ways of doing things and I like the kind of position where I am currently my age range because there are people older than me with so much more experience that I I love speaking to. But then I love speaking to the younger people and going, I never would have thought of that because they have a brand new perspective on things and are usually so enthusiastic about things. And I love discussing things with some of our younger members. And their input is valid. like Their experience is valid. And it's wonderful to kind of hear their experiences and their thoughts and changing, especially as our as our worldview is changing and the way that we live with our dogs is very much changing. No, definitely. Okay, we've got another one. Okay. So the APBC doesn't assess practical training skills. What do you think about it? <laughs> well, as a APBC assessor for both the ADT <laughs> role and the CAB role, I can in fact say that yes, we do because it's on the performance criteria. Um, So we need to make sure that our members not only understand the theory behind things, but can practically apply it. And, you know, you're assessed to make sure that you are kind, that you're fair, that you're effective. We want to make sure that you are able to help the dog read their body language and interpret that and help the owners and the caregivers to be able to teach those behaviours as well. So it is part of our assessment process. We have to see you train. 
Um, and we want to make sure that we can see you train a variety of different dogs with a variety of different ways because we want people to have a wonderful toolbox and we want to know that you can pick the right tool for that situation and you will be assessed on what you pick and why you picked it and why you didn't pick other things as well. <laughs> so it is, it is quite a rigorous process that I don't think a lot of people are aware of just how, how not strict because we want you to pass, but we have high standards and you, you need to be able yeah. to meet them. <laughs> Yeah. And I think because there's, you know, there used to be days when people used to say, I'm a behaviorist, I'm not a trainer. So, you know, I don't, I don't do almost like I think of it as how a psychologist maybe does some of the work, but they don't do the work of like a personal trainer. They might say, you need more exercise, but you need to go see a personal trainer for that because I'm not going to do it. But I think it has moved on. And we do expect if a behaviorist comes out that they can at least teach some yeah. basic training to our clients and that that is different to how it was absolutely because like I have been called an armchair behaviorist so many times <laughs> but I'm like what even is that and you know yes the job of us in our clinical behavior hat on you mm-hmm. know we are generally sat in a chair and we're taking notes because we need to understand the history we are doing a diagnostic process to find out the underlying causes of this animal we aren't looking at the quick fixes we're not looking at oh if i just teach this it'll solve the problem you know because i can teach a dog to sit on a mat when people walk through the door really easily but i'm not going to address that dog's anxiety about the people walking in through teaching that behavior it might mask it it might suppress it but i'm not going to rectify it so that's what we do in our in our diagnosing things so i guess yeah in that context we are in the armchair but the actual kind of application of our training plans we do those as well so we will be out there with the clients you know in the field we're walking the dogs along with them we'll be teaching them how to do all these different exercises and pattern games and anything else that we're doing with them and those of us many of us in fact are ATI so we're, we're accredited trainers as well we are on the register for CAB and ATI um, those of us that aren't doing that I, I myself have a team so I step away from a lot of the in-person training. I could still do it, but I have a team that can do it because I love my diagnosing part of the job. I like my CAB role more than I like my ATI role. They are two different roles and the ABT role that's come through, our new, our newest one, is like the perfect match because that's our rehabilitation trainer role. So many of us have our CAB hats, we have our rehab trainer hats and we have our pet dog instructor hats as well. And they are all very different roles and it's not, it's not hierarchical as much as people think. So I think it's really narrow-minded sometimes of people that go, oh, well, you're a behaviorist, so you can't do that. And like, actually, there's a lot of stuff that we can do. And many of us do compete with our dogs in various different different things. So it's picking the right behaviorist for you because there will be some that do have the old style of, I'm going to listen to you, I'm going to write your report, and then you're on your own. Many mm-hmm. of us have stepped away from that because we have acknowledged that it's not as beneficial to our clients as kind of going okay, I've got a treatment plan for you, but I'm going to release little bits at a time and I'm going to help you work through it together. And if we need to, we cannot call on an external source to come in and help you do the finer training things where you need be. And I think that's what I love about us being part of the ABTC is that we've got all those different roles. So we can look at our thing and go, actually, I really need someone that's fantastic at teaching scent work, for example. You know, something that's a bit more niche most of us can teach the beginnings of scent work, but to be like a fantastic operational scent work trainer, that's a speciality in itself. Mm-hmm. So it's a, here's how we would start. If you like it with your dog, here's a really fantastic scent work instructor that can help you with your reactive dog to give them tasks and confidence in the outdoor world. Or here's a parkour instructor that can help you get your dog to build up their confidence. Here's someone that teaches more obedience type things or agility. 
and we can navigate people into those areas. And it'd be wonderful if, if it kind of worked both ways. So people that are seeing dogs come through in the dog sports see a dog. Actually, this dog really struggles in this situation and we can't quite figure out, hey, we've tried to teach you this. Refer on to us. Let us do the investigation part for you. And then they can come straight back. Yeah, no, I think you're so right. And there's, you know, there's space for everybody. There's there's space for everyone to do those things. And we do have members in the APBC who do do competitive sports, who do do yeah. that very, very high level training with their dogs. So I think it's, yeah, a bit of an unfair assumption to say yeah. that we all just sit down and take notes, like you said. So yeah. yeah, I think you explained that really well, actually. It might have been true like 20 years ago, but a lot has changed since then. And also they weren't behaviours 20 years ago. Like it wasn't, a, you know, honestly, the career, the, the, the amount of opportunities that there are is so different. Like 20 years ago, I mean, I would never say, oh, I want to be a behaviourist when I grow up because it just wasn't a It wasn't a, a known thing. <laughs> so I think, you know, lots of things have changed and, and that's what we're trying to move move on the thinking as yeah. well which is good and I think this kind of leads us on in terms of change is I think one myth or assumption around the APBC is that we're not very diverse um and I'd really like because you've been doing a huge amount of work on diversity and and making us more inclusive so yeah I'd love yeah. for you to talk about that a little bit more yeah and I think dog training as an industry needs to be more diverse more inclusive you know we need to get people from all different walks of life ethnic minorities disabilities um, everything and it's growing and changing and I personally feel that one of the biggest roadblocks there was that you you quite often had to have like an academic mm. qualification of some way to get into the APBC um, which is still very much the case but we now also have our APEL routes um, which a lot of our members worked really hard on with the ABTC to come up with a rigorous way that we can assess people based on their experience because you know we we understand that your experience is valid what you learn from training the dogs from going to conferences and watching workshops and webinars and things like that is very much valid and we want to make sure that we can assess you on that knowledge and go you know what there's 20 years that you've been training dogs for it's absolutely fantastic we want you come on in we can learn a lot from you um if we find out that there's gaps somewhere in your knowledge we can go this bit's all really really good but there's a little bit of around here about your ethology in particular or maybe like your your legal side of things that we can go there's some gaps here it's really worth looking into how to explore these things for these reasons and help you go away um and i myself am part of our diversity equity inclusivity division within the aptc and we've joined with the abtc as our umbrella organization because we really want to help increase diversity and inclusivity within the organizations and dog training as a whole so we want to see more diversity in conferences. We want to see it more in marketing retail. We want to make sure that people from ethnic minorities and like the global majority are able to feel welcomed mm-hmm. into these spaces. Because yeah. um, it used to be quite elitist and mm-hmm. it did feel uncomfortable for a lot of people. Whereas now we want to try and smash down those barriers. It's going to take time. That's the big thing is a lot of the time, a lot of the, especially with our organization being as, as prestige as it is, when we have our conferences, you know, we tend to need people that are PhD level to come and speak. So our our team are working hard to to look beyond the kind of publicly known speakers to find out who who is out there that we can that we can bring that needs the spotlight that we can help with. And yeah. so we're always on the lookout to kind of help bring people into the fold. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're always looking for people that can help do that. And we're working with quite a few different individuals to help us branch out on that to make it more inclusive because we need we need people from all walks of life to better understand the differences in the cultural variations between how people are, how the dogs are, so we can better increase the welfare for everyone. 
And and I think as well, like you said, when when we're seeing clients, you know, you're there are people from all walks of life, and so we need to represent that in some way. And it it will take time, but it, we're making progress in terms of everything that we're trying to do. And I think yes. it's, it's important that we talk about these things as well, because I think sometimes it's you don't want to talk about it because it it can open up to being targeted. And I'm very aware that we are currently, you know, two white women talking about yeah. inclusivity and diversity exactly. yeah. on YouTube as part of our organization, you know, and it's being aware of those things and making changes. Mm-hmm. So just being aware that, you know, as committee members, that voice is now being heard. Like we can get the voices of people yes. to the committee and to the ABTC and go, look, this needs to change because the voices of these people isn't being represented and it needs to be, mm-hmm. um, which is why the APBC, we were one of the first ones to start having subtitles on our recorded webinars. We have our videos on so people can lip read. Um, we try and make sure that things are inclusive for a variety of different disabilities and things to make sure that people are able to respond and we look back for any feedback for things that that we have missed you know mm. like image descriptions and things on on messages on social media and stuff is is big that we're trying to do and sometimes it is missed mm. and you know we need to take responsibility for the things that that we haven't done mm. it's one thing to sit here and go we're making change but yeah. people need to see it <laughs> mm. No, but I hope I hope that people will see it. And I think it's a really important myth uh, to cover or assumption to cover. So, yeah, and I'm so pleased that you came on, that you're, <laughs> you know, you are the co-host because, yeah, you're, you're doing amazing work with that. It is one of my passions is to increase um, diversity, inclusivity for the industry as a whole. Um, so, yeah, it's very much you see me kind of go, oh, this is my thing. Um, so, yeah, definitely. <laughs> amazing okay so talking about organizations we've we've mentioned a few different ones and i think there's a a myth or an assumption because we basically as the APBC for anyone that isn't a member we assess people to become clinical animal behaviorists Mm -hmm. and that means that they go on the ABTC register which is the umbrella so is our assessment of being a clinical animal behaviorist is that the same as other assessors on the ABTC because I think there's a bit of an assumption that different organizations assess clinical behaviorists at different levels yeah I mean the main thing is that anyone on the ABTC register as that umbrella body we assess the same standards so the ABTC and the working groups within basically rate the performance criteria and the knowledge understanding of where they feel everyone's knowledge and their performance needs to be for each of the roles in that register and that is reviewed every like three years or so so they'll always bring in new things and change and adapt things again to maintain inclusivity and to maintain those high standards. So anyone assessing for those roles will assess the same thing. The way they assess might be different. So some of us might be looking for more things than others. Some might be okay with videos. Some might want in person. Um, our assessment process, we have we have written parts, we have video parts, and we have oral interviews. And we want to make sure that we can assess and get evidence that people meet each of these performance criteria. But if you're assessing for CAB and you meet CAB, it doesn't matter which organization you are registered as CAB on because you're, you're assessed the same standard. Brilliant. That's good to know. Cause I feel like there's, because there's so many, is it acronyms? ABTC? Is that yeah. the right? Yeah, yeah. it's like so alphabet many, soup, isn't it? Yeah, there's so many different letters, and I think that can be really confusing. But um, no, I'm really pleased you you cleared that one up. 
No and then my next one, and actually, this is quite a serious one because Ooh. I've heard it, and I'm sure you've probably heard it as well, is that the APBC recommends rehoming or dogs um, or animals being put to sleep too quickly. Yeah. This is this is one that I... It's horrible as an APBC member for people to say that you are really quick to recommend euthanasia for a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, as APBC members, we will never recommend anything like that there may be suggestions that go on and we will discuss options with people and it is very much the client's decision and responsibility and we will support them so if a client comes to us and they're like this is our dog this is a situation it's a dangerous situation what are we going to do we then have to discuss them the safety management risks for the current situation some of these dogs could be rehabilitated but the rehabilitation might take six to eight months and they still have to live with this dog. And if there's small children, things involved, we have to assess the safety risk there. We then have to look at rehoming. And then it's, okay, where can we rehome to? Mm-hmm. Um, and the rehoming stage, especially at the minute, is incredibly difficult. So can we find this dog a suitable home, a safe home? What about the dog's welfare in the meantime? Is it going to be bounced from rescue to rescue to home to home just to end up being PTS in two or three years' time? Like, There's so many different things to go on with these cases that it's it's never a... They come to us, they have a bite history. Instantly we go, no, you're best off putting them to sleep. Like that was something that we would never, ever do. It's never an easy decision for any of us. And most of us, if we have a case where that that has to be an outcome or that's been discussed and it turns out is an outcome, we tend to have to have a couple of days off and eat some ice cream with our clients. Like it is not a nice thing to go through. None of us got into this job because we exactly. want to euthanize exactly. dogs. Like we want to help, we want to support, but we're also realistic in the dogs that we can help and the situations and sometimes the unicorn home for some of these dogs just doesn't Mm. exist and they are so stressed their welfare is compromised and that's the discussion that we need to have with with the clients and with the vet sometimes there are medical things that contribute to this that that are too much that it's just not a clear-cut thing of a dog comes to us and we'll recommend that because we won't we will discuss everything and we are all aware that that is a potential option and behavioral euthanasia is a valid option for some people as hard as it is to to think about when you're looking at welfare and distress for everyone sometimes that that is the right option for these clients in these situations especially if there's a medical thing going on or if the dog is just that stressed and traumatized that they are never going to really fully recover and these are horrible horrible cases it's not something that we're going to take lightly and if we can avoid if we can avoid or find another home or a rehabilitation center that is going to be the priority but the state of the rescues at the minute and finding those rehoming places are getting slim and mm-hmm. slim so i really hate when people say that that's like a that first thought because it is never our first thought it is the last resort for the majority of dogs you know we work very closely with vets to avoid these things so we can get medications into these dogs faster if they need to we can get that medical support on side but there's just some situations where yeah it is an outcome but they're few and far between you know i think i think with the dangerous you know the situation that we're recording dangerous dog attacks are are increasing for we're not going to go into it now but we, there is, you know, there is a big responsibility in terms of you as an owner, in terms of keeping people safe and yourself safe. So that's one thing. But then we also have that burden where, okay, we're not directly living with the dog and responsible with the dog, but you've asked us for our 
help and so it's 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 never an easy there's never this oh that dog's too tricky to train we'll just put it to sleep like no one would ever think that that that's no. not what we're trained to do like no no vet would want to do that no one who loves animals would ever want to do that so I don't really know where this this has, has come from I, I don't it's one of those things that you know hopefully we've debunked it now and no one will ever say it again because it's not true yeah so, um- and people always argue that, oh, well, you could have gone for these training methods or these things. But again, when we're looking at these cases, we're looking at welfare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want to make sure that these dogs are living the best life possible and not one where they are completely stressed and shut down. And, you know, many of us in these cases, like we get just as upset as the owners do, you know, and we will wake up at you know three o'clock in the morning going, oh, my God, what if this happens? So what if this happens? Oh, maybe we could try this. Like it is on our mind all the time to try and help these people as much as possible so hopefully this helps you you kind of debunk that that we're not just going to go straight into a case and go right euthanasia that's because we're not we're going to look at everything and try and help you find the best course possible for your dog to make your life easier with that being hopefully the the last resort Mm -hmm. yeah no it's it's a really tricky one but i thought i wanted to cover it because i think it's important that we have these conversations and you know i'm sure there's probably room to do a whole episode all about yeah, I think a, an episode about behavior euthanasia and and discussing more about it as as a not a treatment option because that's not the the best thing but as an outcome because there's a lot of people that have gone through that and it's heartbreaking for people to go through but they had very 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 valid reasons to doing so and they shouldn't be shamed for doing it no 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 and, and also I'm just thinking um in terms of rescue it's yeah everyone thinks there's this farm and the dogs just run and they just live free it just it's not like that and there's some rescues where they will have to make those decisions as well there's some situations where we know full well if this dog goes into a rescue the rescue will euthanize it instead yeah so it's a is it a kinder for that dog to to go to the vets with their family with the people that they love rather than going through the stress of going into rescue for it to happen later mm-hmm. sometimes we kind of have to think about taking that responsibility on ourselves rather than pushing it on off onto someone else mm-hmm. because there's just there's so many dogs and especially so many dogs that need rescue and if you've got a dog in rescue with a bite history and one without the one without is the easy one to rehome and the one with the bite history is going to stay there for longer and longer and longer and rescues will do their best to make sure the welfare is is optimum is optimum but we have to look at these things on welfare grounds as well oh well i think that's covered that really nicely with that one um so i think just maybe finish on a lighthearted lighter note (laughs) (laughs) is um so a myth that i've heard about trainers and behaviorists is that you know we're all just you know we're all kind of doing this as a side job um it's it's an easy source of income and we're just doing it because we're all funded by rich husbands <laughs> and inheritances and I've heard people people seem to have this assumption that they come to us and it's like a hobby or it's a you know oh, wow. so I'd love for you to talk through that I mean thinking back to the to the days when like I was a single mum and yeah. this was like my full-time job and I had to pick up an extra job on the side because people had that idea. Um, it's it's frustrating because, yeah, there was a time when, you know, dog training was a dog club at the weekend and you paid a couple of pounds and 
and that was it but as an industry we have grown and we have found that there is a very valid need for this for public safety as you mentioned earlier about the dogs for welfare to make sure that people can communicate effectively with their animals and we have learned so much like there are degrees there are master's degrees now that mm. specialized in this thing it is a very valid profession in its own right and as such the prices are going to reflect that you know it's not going to be a cheap thing and you will pay for what you get in most situations not all be aware of the websites and what organizations people belong to but you know when you come to one of our members with a problem with your dog the reasons that quite often our fees are a little bit higher than most think is because we've usually got so much experience in academic things that we're not just going to look at a situation going, right, we're just going to teach you this. We want to get to that root cause. And that takes a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience to be able to go, okay, here are all the possible reasons why your dog might be doing this behavior. Let's have a chat so we can figure out how to rule each one in and out. And then we can come up with an accurate diagnosis for you and your dog and a tailor-made treatment plan. Like that's what you're getting so when you're looking at that it's that experience i love the the chat about kind of like the the boiler men that kind of come in and they take two minutes to look at something and they tap it in a certain place and they charge you like your 100 pounds like you were here for a second and you did this it's like yeah but you're charging me for the knowledge to know that that's yeah. what i needed to do yeah. it's the same thing with us is you're you're paying us for our time and our knowledge mm -hmm. and the skills that we have and the cpd that we do every year to update those those skills and knowledge um this is very much not a hobby for us it is a career it might start out as a hobby because training dogs is fun yeah but to learn how to do it properly and how to teach other people how to do that is a whole different skill and it's very much a a career path yeah um so yeah it's it's um oh do you do you do this full time is this your job is this what you do full time and people yeah. still don't seem to know that it is actually a career path I wouldn't say it's a traditional career path no, um but it, it is something that uh, you know a lot of our members are doing full time so that's yeah I, th I just thought it was a funny one to cover because yeah. yeah it's something that I've heard and people kind of seem to think that it's not but a lot of our members it's their full-time career they take it very seriously they've got a huge amount of uh, experience a lot of knowledge they've spent a lot of money on their career so yeah we are doing it full time <laughs> yeah so our prices kind of have to reflect that because you know we, <laughs> we have rent and children and things yeah. <laughs> oh brilliant oh thank you so much Danielle that's been um oh. you've been doing that like going over everything so well so I'm hoping it's debunked any myths if anyone has any questions about anything and wants to to open up discussion by all means comment and we will do our best because we don't want to censor anyone's voice and do that everything is valid and we are aware that things need to improve mm -hmm. like and changes need to happen it's just the rate at which they happen especially in a large organization as ours because it has to go through committees and then it has to be filtered through to things so it can take change and a lot of things are planned a few years in advance so we might be making changes now but you're not going to see it in effect until like three years when the next plan of things come in so there's a timeline that but I think a lot of people are aware of with bigger organisations of how things are planned. Absolutely. So. Do comment. And um, only thing we'd ask is just keep it nice. Yeah, be, be, be polite, please. Be nice, yeah. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, we've we've all seen the, the fallout of, of the industry. So, yeah, be nice. But um, you can comment anything. And do make sure you subscribe and you share with anybody that you think will find it useful. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll see you in the next session. Bye. <laughs>